Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. American history shows us that amidst any election season, we are often divided, that partisan rancor is often high, and that it's a healthy part of the passion of democracy. But today, we seem to have something much worse. While we've been here before as a country, we are at one of those historical inflection points where the bitterness spills over into every other aspect of life. And while history shows us other bitter splits, today the long tail of the Internet and technology has made us more tribal, more prone to confirmation bias, and to only associating with our own tribe. Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said that we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. Today the proliferation of information has made everyone feel empowered by their own facts, true or false. We live in a world that William Butler Yeats writes about when he said that things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passion and intensity. My guest, Mark Gerson, thinks he can change this. Of course, we remember that Barack Obama did as well. Mark Gerson is an author, a leadership consultant, and convener of cross-party conversations. He co-designed and facilitated the first U.S. House of Representatives bipartisan congressional retreat and has been on the frontier of Democratic-Republican dialogue. He's the author of the previous book, Leading Through Conflict, and it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Gerzen here to talk about his newest work, The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. Mark Gerzen, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jeff. Thank it's you. It's great to have you here. In order to bridge any kind of a partisan divide, doesn't it mean that the public in general has to buy in to the system, to the fundamental institutions, to have some kind of overriding belief that the system can serve them or serve the best interests of the country? And we seem to have lost that today. We seem to have lost that, and I think uh, the result of losing that is that we're not solving the problems we face. And I think that's the challenge, Jeff, is that if people want, let's, you know, let's say in Northern California, if there are problems facing the community and you want to solve them, um, do you want to solve them or do you want to be right? Do you want to be right and just say what you've said for your whole life and argue with the people who disagree with you for your whole life, or do you want to solve a problem? And I, I'm betting, and the book is basically about this, that most Americans want to solve problems and make their lives better, make their children's lives better, that that's more important to us than being liberal or conservative. But that's that's my bet. That's my bet on the good judgment of the American people. Well, I, I think that that bet is a good one, that people do want to solve problems. But the question is whether they have faith in the traditional infrastru- political infrastructure to solve those problems. And if they don't, then they're looking for solutions outside of that structure, which really creates additional problems with respect to this divide that we see today. I, I agree with you, but I, I, and I, I'm, 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 I don't think people have faith in the institutions today. I know that I don't, and I don't think that's actually what the Founding Fathers wanted from us. The Founding Fathers didn't say, have faith in what we've created and just stick to it forever. They said, Jefferson said, every generation, which he thought was every 19 years, has to renew the institutions of democracy. So we're well, well overdue. When I first started working with Congress in the late 90s, Jeff, I felt like I had seen the red light come on on the dashboard of the car, you know, that says, you know, you need oil. And, and I feel like, you know, for 20 years we haven't put oil in the engine of democracy, and now it's breaking down. And, and that's not what the Founding Fathers wanted. They said, you better put oil in that car, you better fix the engine, you better put on new tires, you better repair that 
democracy regularly, otherwise it's not going to work. They, they created this country when there was no Internet, when there was no you know, birth control pills, when there were no you know, assault, assault weapons. They, they could have never foreseen the world we're living in today, and I think we need to renew our democracy to deal with it. And yet we have Supreme Court justices, or had Supreme Court justices, and candidates running for president that believed in this originalist notion that the founding fathers really knew everything and that those principles are applicable to this world we live in today. And given that as a fundamental point of trying to find some kind of common ground, it seems impossible. It does seem impossible, which is why I structured the book around 30 or 40 organizations that are bridging the partisan divide, including one in your backyard, Living Room Conversations, which comes out of San Francisco and is now spread around the country. And Living Room Conversations is one of 30 or 40 organizations that I, I profile that are bridging the divide in communities, in schools, in churches, in state legislatures, and even on Capitol Hill. The problem, Jeff, and this is where I'm, I'm grateful to you and your show and shows like it, is that the people who are crossing the divide don't get any attention. If you're on the left or the right, particularly if you've got a billion dollars in your pocket, you can get a lot of attention. But if you're crossing the divide and solving problems um, by working them through in a cr creative and, 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 and respectful way, uh, the media doesn't cover you. So I would say that a reader who goes to my book will learn about dozens of organizations they've never heard of before. When we look at this, and when you look at this, whether it's organizations here in the Bay Area or whether it's, it's kids on campus at Notre Dame or whatever it may be, those are, are, are situations where there are local control. It is a smaller universe of trying mm -hmm. to solve more local or more specific problems. Have we lost the ability? Is it impossible to begin to do this on a national scale? Yes, it can be done in communities. Yes, it can be done even on college campuses. But have we lost the ability and the faith in the institutions to do it on a larger scale? Well, I think we have lost the faith, but I want to say again, Jeff, I think we should lose faith. They're, they've gotten, um, they're, it's, like a, it's like I said, it's like an old, old car that's not working anymore. And unless we repair it, unless we, the citizens, repair it. So I think, yes, we have lost faith, and I think the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Donald Trump campaign signify that, one on the more progressive side and one on the conservative side, that it shows that we have lost faith. And I, I really appreciate people who are saying these institutions no longer work. Um, and I profile several of those organizations, like the Federal Election Commission or the Presidential Debate Commission, uh, a number of organizations that should be working and they're basically dead in the water. And so, yes, we have lost faith, and I think uh, we need to lose faith and actually get to work. Yeah, you, you touch on something, though, that I think goes to the heart of, of some of the problem that, problems that people see. And that is, in talking about the Trump campaign and the, and the Bernie Sanders campaign, this sense of equivalency. And, and there is, I would argue, that there is not equivalency, equivalency with respect to the extremism of one of those points of view. I agree with that. I agree with that. The only equivalency I was drawing, Jeff, was that I think Trump folks, I've listened to the interviews and I've read long uh, articles about both campaigns. What they do share is a loss of faith in the institutions. Um, I happen to be more of a Bernie Sanders type than a Donald Trump uh, person, as you right. can imagine. Uh, but the commonality between the two is that they've lost faith. And I think many of the people in the middle, too, have. I, I share in the United States of America that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party 
these two parties that are making all the noise, they represent smaller fractions of the American people than those who've declared themselves independents. And I think most independents have also lost faith in the two-party system. That's why they call themselves independents. So I think actually the loss of faith is on the right, the left, and in the middle. But as one of the people I quote in my book says, the American people know they've been robbed, they just don't know by whom. And I, and I think, you know, we come up with different analyses about how to fix it. And I'm, I talk about some of those analyses in my book. But the bottom line is, citizens like those who are listening to your program this morning, um, we have to get involved in fixing those institutions because they're not going to fix by themselves. And the politicians left to their own devices will not fix it. I know that because I designed the retreats for the U.S. Congress that took, you know, more than half of the U.S. Congress off site for a weekend long you know, retreat to repair their relationship. And, you know, it, it's not enough. You can't just take them off and say, let's turn out, learn, how to, learn how to have a dialogue and have ground rules and pass a talking stick. You need the American citizens pressuring them to actually get the job done. Of course, there is even stronger pressure coming from the other side with respect to money. The system is, as we know, awash in millions and, and billions of dollars that are being spent. That's true. And I was just reading Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, right. and it's a powerful book that profiles the rise of money on the right. Um, I happen to also know the people who, um, starting in the early 2000s, saw that happening, and bless their souls, Jeff, they said, hey, you know, you can't have the right outspending the left five to one. Uh, we need to make sure the left has money. <laughs> So they started the Democracy Alliance, and the Democracy Alliance started raising hundreds of millions of dollars to counter the money on the right. So what we have now, according to one of the people involved in the Democracy Alliance, is we have a two-headed monster. We have, again, I'm not suggesting equivalency, but there's a billion-plus on the right, and there's a billion-plus on the left. Um, the right has more than the left, but both of them have a billion-plus. And in the middle, Jeff, this is the point, in the middle, the organizations that I profile in my book... Um, they're trying to get by on pennies. They're trying to get by as nonprofits on little donations. And, and, and so we have a culture now, Jeff, that is all the money is going to the extremes. And there's very, very little money for people in your community to get together and say, hey, we've got a problem, let's solve it. I want to talk about one of the areas where I think that there is hope. And as you see, I'm pretty negative about all of this. But I do see hope in the next generation, in the millennial generation. And you, pro you profile a few of those examples, including one on the Notre Dame campus in the book. Talk a little about that. Well, I've been very moved by the, the young people who've come to me um, and said, you know, on campuses, and have said to me, you know, I'm, I'm not, I happen to be a liberal, or I happen to be a conservative, but my roommates, you know, differs from me. Do we have to deal with our differences the way your generation did? Isn't there some other alternative? So they've been responding very positively to the United States of America because they have been watching. Basically, their consciousness was shaped since the Clinton impeachment period in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. That's the entire span of their, you know, uh, uh, awakened lives, their, their, their conscious lives. And what they've seen is just this incredible dysfunction, constant dysfunction from one, you know, spiraling from one, one crisis to another, careening from right to left. And so I find that the millennials, first of all, they're, they're, by far and away the biggest group of independents. You know, that almost 60% of millennials say they're independents, which is, uh, you know, 
a bit, a much larger than the boomer generation, for example. And not only are they saying they're independents, but they're, they're also saying, don't shove me into a box. Um, I, I, I grew up with an internet here. I can, I can pick and choose the songs. As one of my interviewees says, uh, they could pick the song. They didn't have to buy the album. So they don't want to be pushed in a box called liberal or a box called conservative. Not surprisingly, they look at the liberal conservative storylines and they go, well, there's some truth on both sides, you know. I mean, there's, the extremes are crazy, but there's some truth on both sides. Um, let's put those truths together and solve problems. It's a very Silicon Valley kind of attitude, mm-hmm. which is let's, let's innovate. You know, let's create a better iPhone. Let's create a better iPad. And they're saying basically let's create a better democracy. And I think it's one of the most refreshing and positive signs. I agree with you completely that I believe the millennials listening to your show this morning are probably thinking, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I think, and I think it's a sign of hope. I suppose the only danger in that is the degree to which they become turned off by so much of the, this heated rhetoric that's going on literally today. Well, they do become turned off, and a number of them have said to me, um, oh, I don't pay attention to politics. Uh, I'm much more interested in you know, entrepreneurship. I'm much more interested in social media. I'm much more interested in solving problems by starting a you know, a good startup company that solves this problem or solves that problem. And I say, well, good for you, you know, by all means, go into the private sector. But I say to them, don't have the illusion, don't have the illusion that politics will take care of itself. Because if you abandon it, um, you'll get screwed. And, and I, I argue quite clearly in my book that millennials, their generation is basically being played by the left and the right. Uh, the left and right want their, want their votes. But the left and the right are both very happy to create programs of various kinds that, that spend their money. The right wants to do it, obviously, in, 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 their, in one way, and the left wants to do it another. But they're both spending the millennials' generation's future. Right. And so I, I'm, I tell millennial audiences when I'm on campuses, uh, wake up um, and uh, start to let your voice be heard. And um, I have a piece coming out in the Huffington Post called Millennial Power, which basically profiles many of the organizations that millennials are starting that I think are part of the answer. Does the situation have to get worse before it gets better, in your view? Well, history shows that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And, and my experience as a mediator for the United Nations in other countries where they've had civil wars and, 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 and violence around elections suggests that it has to get worse. But uh, I, I do have faith in the American people. We are an educated people. We are people with free media. Um, we can you know, create little boxes with our media, but the bottom line is we, we are free to hear different points of view. And uh, so my hope is that we don't have to get as violent and as crazy and as destructive as we've seen in other countries, that we are an old and, and venerable democracy. And um, so I hope we wake up, Jeff, before um, it's too late. And I think programs like this and people like you and books like mine are all part of a movement. We call it the movement to reunite America. Uh, we sometimes call it the transpartisan movement because it's trying to get beyond that kind of knee-jerk partisanship. Um, my hope is that this movement grows and gains strength and uh, that we wake up in time. There is a school, and this goes to the, to the idea of things getting worse before they get better. There is a school of thought that says that if you have a problem that is completely intractable and seemingly unsolvable, as so much of the partisan divide is today, that the only solution is to create a bigger problem, and that might be more solvable. Well, that was the old Marxist argument, right. that before things, need to get be- before things are going to get better, um, they have to get worse. So let's make them worse so they can get better. And you see that now in, 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 the, in the strands of various radical terrorism that say, you know, let's, let's, bomb, 
let's bomb innocent children playing in a park in Pakistan because we want to make Pakistan into a you know Muslim caliphate or something. I mean, I, I'm not very sympathetic, as you can hear from my voice, for people who say, let's make things worse. I'm very sympathetic to people who protest against injustice and protest against institutions that are obsolete or racist or oppressive. Um, but they're protesting with a very positive purpose in mind, and they're really trying to return us to the core values of our country. And I, I think in my book I talk a lot about e pluribus unum because I felt like the Founding Fathers put their finger on it, which was out of many, one. And I respect the many, but right now we're, we're in danger of becoming um, pluribus and losing touch with the unum. We're losing touch with what connects us. And I think that's what you were pointing to earlier when you said, aren't we losing faith in our institutions? And I think we are. I think we are. That's why we need a period of renewal and revitalization of all of these of all of these institutions. It's interesting. There's an interesting dichotomy at play, particularly with respect to millennials, in that they do see, I mean, this goes to your point earlier, the value of, of local, closer-to-home institutions, of things that they can control and things that they can see positive results from. On a, on a larger scale, on a macro scale, they do see the value of, of global institutions and see the interconnection of the world in ways that previous generations didn't. It, it's everything in the middle with respect to primarily what goes on in Washington that they, they seem to have no faith and, and don't see any solutions. Exactly. And, uh, you know, to my mind, that's why No Labels is an exciting organization. It has its problems, but No Labels is the organization that's brought together, you know, almost a hundred members of the House of Representatives into a problem-solving caucus. And they've actually created some incentives for Democrats and Republicans to, to join this caucus and say, yes, I'm a Democrat, liberal, I'm, yes, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, but I also think we need to get these problems solved. And, and um, you know, that's one of the kind, and we also have that in state legislatures. We have in, you know, more than a dozen state legislatures now, we have a group called Next Generation, which appeals surprisingly, not surprisingly, to the younger members of state legislatures that are bringing Democrats and Republicans across the aisle into retreat settings and saying, you know, you're from opposite parties and you're going to fight with each other, but let's get to know each other and find some common values that can guide us forward and learn, help us work together in the state legislature. So there are positive signs at every level. What's missing, as I said before, what's missing is that energy from the citizenship that says, I'm as interested in problem solving as I am in, you know, watching the, you know, the food fest, you know, the food fight on, uh, on television. What do you think is going to be the net result of this election cycle with respect to some of these issues that we're talking about? Whether this will have an effect in turning even more people off, making it even more difficult to get back to this transpartisan idea that you're talking about? Well, I think it's going both ways. I think it's partly the answer, Jeff, to your question, does it need to get worse uh, before it gets better? And I, I should have actually said, Jeff, it is getting worse. <laughs> that 2016, uh, by all accounts, um, in my lifetime, is the dirtiest, ugliest, most toxic, most um, attack-oriented election I can remember. Likewise. And I go back, you know, basically my memory goes back to Kennedy mm -hmm. uh, in the 60s. And um, so I, I do think it has gotten worse. Um, and it's doing two things. It's turning some people off, uh, but it's also turning others on. Because, you know, the analogy that I use is, 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 if, is if the symptom you have, a, you know, physical symptom in your body is not that bad, you can kind of ignore it, you know. But if it gets bad and really starts to hurt, um, you go to the doctor. Um, you, get, you know, you treat it. And so I think what's happened this year is that nobody, as I'm out speaking about my book and 
doing workshops, no one is saying to me, Jeff, oh, I, don't, I think it's always been like this. People said that to me in 2000. They said that to me in 2004 and 2008. Nobody's saying that to me today, that it hasn't gotten worse. Everybody's saying it has gotten worse. What are we going to do about it? Mark Gerson, his book is The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been great, Jeff. Thank you for your program. Thank you.